Hello fellow survivors and welcome to another episode of At The End Of The Line, a rail tour of post-apocalyptic England. I'm your host and amateur exologist Richard Oliver. For those listening for the first time, perhaps you've managed to cobble together a working radio out of assorted electrical junk or something like that, this is essentially a travelogue of my train journey around post-apocalyptic England, and also bringing you news, updates and whatever else might be useful. In the last episode I met the former English literature professor Jonathan Castlebridge and the group of people he had inspired to become the Knights of Narrative Purpose. Castlebridge had come to see the world as being little more than a story and to lead a good life was to follow your story, or if you were supremely important, THE story. The Knights swallowed his philosophy whole and were willing to fight for what they believed in. Unfortunately for me and my companions they had come to believe that my friend Sophia was one of these supremely important people, and she was not following the story, but rather lost in the narrative I had created with my podcast. And after consulting Castlebridge, they had decided that killing me was the simplest way to resolve the matter. The knights led me out of the building, through an old fire exit and pushed me to the ground. I looked back and saw one of them loading a pistol. Panicking, I tried to run, but I had barely made it to my feet when something struck the back of my legs and I was down again. Let's get this over with, said the knight with the pistol, and pressed the weapon to the back of my head. She squeezed the trigger. Nothing happened. I heard some mumbled cursing and the sound of metal moving as the weapon was tinkered with, and again pressed against my head. Again she squeezed the trigger and nothing happened. It's jammed again, snapped the woman, and blamed their old equipment and instead asked for someone's sword. Wait, said Cattlebridge, who I had only realised was present when he spoke. This isn't right. But instead of explaining a moral argument based on the evils of murdering a fellow human being, he went on to his bizarre philosophy, basically stating this wasn't the way the story should go. If nothing else, Zofia had the chance to save me, and the gun failing twice was a sign. The knights backed off and I slowly stood up, unsteady on my feet. One of the other knights asked what they should do about Vasca and her team, and the unanimous decision was that they should be killed as they would inevitably try to interfere and a plan was hastily put together. They would confront Vasca with me as a hostage and ask them to surrender. When they did, they would be killed. The knights were rightly cautious. Vasca and her team were no pushovers, and were every bit as capable kill machines as they were enthusiastic book lovers. But if caught by surprise, who knew how the fight would go? As for me, I didn't particularly want to be used as a hostage, but hostage was better than just being shot in the back of the head and dumped in a shallow grave. We went back to Castlebridge's office and some of the knights went to rally their comrades as they were spread out across the university and surrounding area. Castlebridge went back to his desk and started working on his typewriter. At first he was oblivious to the daggers I was staring at him, but eventually he realised. He told me that he understood how difficult this must be, but my life would be better if I accepted my place in the narrative. Death wasn't something to be scared of, but seen as the completion of your life. I asked him if he would be so comfortable if it was his life, and he said he would. Let me show you something, said Castlebridge. 
he gestured to one of the tall stacks of paper on his desk. That's a story. Or maybe that's just self-aggrandizement on my part. It's a story. My story, he said. I looked at the papers and guessed it was in the thousands of pages. It's still fiction. I had a fair bit of artistic license. Some characters are amalgamations of various people. Various edits are made. In these pages, I have suffered. I have lost things and people important to me. But it's the way the story goes. I flicked through the stack of paper, glancing at individual sheets. Wait, I said, seeing something that caught my eye. This person, Patrick. You've written that they were the protagonist. I brandished a sheet of paper at Castlebridge. He took it from me and glanced at it. Oh yes, I remember him, said Castlebridge. I was wrong. I thought he might have been the protagonist. He died fighting the knights, like all the others have. I spent a few seconds taking this in. How many people have you thought were the protagonist? Castlebridge knew the answer without even thinking about it. Sixteen. Seventeen including Sophia. And they're all dead? Yes. Meaning by definition they couldn't be the protagonist, said Castlebridge. But I have high hopes for Sophia. But those people, they didn't have to die. Don't you see? You killed them for nothing. Castlebridge took a deep breath. That is regrettable, but a handful of lives means nothing against finding the real protagonist. I walked away, or as far as the knights allowed me anyway, as I couldn't be near Castlebridge. I watched the knights assembled, they checked their weapons and made preparations for the fight ahead. A knight grabbed me by my jacket collar and led me behind the other knights. A knife was pressed against my back and it was made clear that any attempt at warning my friends would go very badly for me. The party they sent outnumbered Vasquez's team slightly, and then they split up into two groups so they could attack from two sides. It was unclear to me just how many knights there were, but presumably they couldn't simply bring overwhelming numbers. Moreover, not all the knights had guns, and those who did were decades old. Vasquez's team was armed with the best weapons the central government authority could muster, Besides, to me, Vasco was a superhero of a history of art degree, seemingly unstoppable, and as the knights waited to attack, I thought of all the other times she had survived seemingly impossible odds. It is worth mentioning that the handful of times Vasco has appeared in this podcast is only a heavily truncated collection of her deeds and adventures, and if there was one person who deserves a spin-off, it is her. To summarise, in a straight fight, it was not clear who would come out on top. We waited outside the door to the room and I was told what to say. Vasca, I shouted out. Look, things have gone a bit south. Zofia went mad and attacked the knights. They don't want to fight. I felt the knife press harder against me. There's a lot of them here, but if you surrender your weapons, you can leave. We can leave. What about Zofia? I heard Vasca shout back. She's already dead, I yelled in response. The knights stood ready and waited. Then the wall exploded. Correspondence Navin, currently trapped in the great unending labyrinth, asks, What forms of entertainment do you have on board? I can get so bored being trapped here. 
I thought I saw someone yesterday. Was it my imagination? Was it another person? Or was it the Minotaur? Good question, Navin. Travelling through the danger-filled post-apocalypse can get a bit boring. We have a cinema, which shows everything from classic movies to live ballet performances, to the annual rich and burning of one million marks to appease the economic gods. We have a computer room where we can play games, work, and providing we have the signal strength, talk to loved ones or bitter enemies. I wouldn't count this as entertainment, and I'm trusting others that this place even exists, but we do have a gymnasium. There's a long-standing petition to have a holodeck installed, but we are constantly told that they don't actually exist. I should add that we did have a social coordinator, a man named Nathaniel, who I believe I mentioned way back when we were being attacked by suicidal ghosts. Nathaniel would organise talent contests, board game nights, and traditional Scottish Cayley dancing. Nathaniel was deeply unpopular, and in a rather unfortunate incident, a passenger stoved his head in with a croquet mallet. But as it turned out, this was all for the best, as Nathaniel was actually a cyborg who had planned to kill us all at the ice cream social he had organised for the following week. The position of social coordinator remains open. Kwame, who believes he's at the North Pole, asks, Does hosting a post-apocalyptic travel podcast pay well? Well, Kwame, I suppose the answer is yes and no. No, in that my actual salary is very low. In fact, it is essentially zero. But yes, in that I have accommodation, free food, free medical care, a free funeral should I die while on board, and not only is this stuff free, it is amongst the best examples of it in the world. Also, as I am currently in England, where they are still running on a border economy, money wouldn't really do me much good. As for when the time comes for me to leave the train, the central government authority advises us against making any plans further than six months into the future, as who knows what the world will look like then, or even if you'll be alive. Last question for this week. Hannah, Hannah and Hannah from Edinburgh asks, I accidentally replicated myself, creating exact duplicates, including memories. As such, we can't agree who was the original. Does this matter? We actually don't mind. That's a very interesting question, Hannah. Philosophically, if you are happy, that's great. Scientifically, I would imagine you are all essentially identical, so that wouldn't matter. However, after speaking to a lawyer on board, Catalina Hernandez, who specialises in doppelganger law, the Central Government Authority would be very interested. By law, the so-called original will need to prove this. In the eyes of the CGA, they are the one who has paid taxes, has a passport, etc. And other duplicates will need to be assigned numbers, so Hannah 2 and Hannah 3. Also, the duplicates will need to be screened for any, well, evil tendencies, as this is a common side effect. Catalina stressed that I tell you that hiding this from the CGA is a very serious offence, and there are potentially very grave consequences, especially for the duplicates. The wall didn't actually explode, but a wooden wall that was possibly centuries old was shredded by what looked like several hundred bullets. I looked around at the knights, some were dead, some were injured, and a few looked untouched. And then I realised I was part of that middle category. I hadn't felt being shot, and even when I looked down at the blood soaking my shirt, a pale blue genuine Carlos Chianze button down, 
and absolutely irreplaceable, it still didn't hurt. Another thing I had not realised was that I was no longer standing and I had no idea how that had happened. The bullet had struck me just above my left hip and really I was lucky it was the only injury I received. The fight was still going on in the other room. The second group of knights had attacked and had been joined by those who could still stand after Vasca's barrage of gunfire. I could hear the fighting, sounds of struggling, shouts of pain, the clash of metal, occasional gunshots. For a moment I tried to work out what was happening. There was a sound of breaking glass followed by a scream. I could hear approaching footsteps embrace myself. It was Vasca. She staggered through the doorway, bleeding from various different wounds and walking with a pronounced limp, using her rifle as a makeshift crutch. She looked down at me. So, you survived, she said in a matter-of-fact way. I would subsequently think of a dozen or so cutting, witty retorts, but as is always the way, these were lost to Spirit de Escalier. At the time, I think I just managed some mumbled complaints. Vasker explained that the rest of her team were dead, and while I sometimes paint a picture of her as someone who cares more about art than people, Vasca was clearly deeply affected by their deaths. All the knights were also dead, or at least weren't going to be fighting anyone anytime soon. And Vasca was very interested in what had happened and could hardly believe it when I told her. So, I know I said Sophia is dead. She isn't, I explained. And Vasca replied that yes, that was obvious, as I wasn't a very good liar. Just like she knew if they had surrendered to the knights, they would have killed her and her team. Vasca took a look at my wound and said it wasn't too serious and we could do something about it after all this had been resolved. Frankly, I thought it wanted more urgent attention, but reluctantly deferred to her greater expertise. Not without complaint, she helped me to my feet and we tried to work out what to do. Vasca was her normal self, demanding revenge for her team, but I argued that we should just find Sophia and leave, pointing out that we were both injured and the knights would undoubtedly outnumber us. Fortunately, Vasca's adherence to protocol made her side with me. The train's policy was quite clear on this. Revenge was a luxury we couldn't afford. Besides, some other horrible thing would likely come along and kill them for us, a fringe benefit of the apocalypse. I was about to say something when Vasca raised her hand and gestured for me to be quiet. I heard it too. People were coming. Vasca leant against the wall and reloaded her rifle, but I shook my head. Get out of here. Find Zofia, I said. Vasca thought about it for a moment and then nodded. She headed back into the room and through the broken window she had moments ago thrown someone through. The pain in my side was growing worse. I leaned against the walls and night surrounded me. There was only four of them, but that was more than enough to handle me. For this episode's edition of Who's On Board? Well, my guest isn't actually on board, and we are going to communicate via the miracle of modern technology. We did extend an invitation to today's guest, but he turned us down. So, my guest is a man who has been mentioned on this show before, Mr. Mason Veitch, one of the leading people in the Wade Adler Company's English operations. Now, Richard, 
be fair. We offer to host you at one of our facilities, and you are equally reluctant. Listeners, that is true, but I feed for my freedom. Indeed, for my very life should I have accepted the invitation. <laughs> oh, Richard, I saved your life not too long ago. And as I keep telling you, you're English, and the Wade Adler Company owns England. It is in our interest for you to prosper. Besides, if we wanted you dead, I assure you, you would be dead. That is very reassuring, Mason. I don't want to get too sidetracked talking about our history, but rather I wanted to talk to you about the Wade Adler Company and its presence in England. I absolutely agree, Richard. I'll start us off. As the owner of England... Your claim of ownership is rather disputed by the Central Government Authority. The rightful Queen of England, Elizabeth Cooper, is also the co-owner of the Wade Adler Company. And how is Queen Elizabeth III? The last I saw of her was when I left her behind in a hellish fight between mutants and mercenaries. It seems odd that Lizzie has been so quiet since then. That was never her style. Miss Cooper has been extremely busy and doesn't have time to parade in front of the news cameras. What I want to say is this. England is going to become one of the most lucrative properties in all of financial history. The Wade Adler Company wants to use the unique selling points of the island and get all we can out of it. Yes, your claim to England doesn't seem to actually involve trying to improve the country or help the people living there. The Wade Adler Company has listened to the concerns of the public regarding those people who happen to have found themselves in England. And I can assure you, we will put their well-being... Well... Not quite first, but pretty high up on our list of priorities. But, admittedly, our focus will be on continuing the apocalyptic presence in England. You seem to be the only people who are actually investing in the apocalypse. Quite frankly, that seems... despicable. Richard, we were promised a fair interview. Tell me, Mason, how would you describe forcing millions of people to suffer and die in the apocalypse? a unique investment opportunity. Richard, you may see me as some analytical, emotionless Hannibal Lecter type who sits in a big comfy chair drinking a big juicy brain frosty. But I'm just a man. And we're down to what? 500 million of them? So maybe be a little less judgmental. All I'm saying is this. We've all seen the damage the apocalypse can do. Why can't we also make some money out of it? Make money out of it? I mean, I don't know where to start, Mason. Remember that guy you met? Who made implants for people and, like, clockwork stuff? You mean Cartwright, who made people into slaves? Yes, that's right. That guy made amazing scientific innovations with virtually no resources. Imagine what the Wade Adler Company could do with him. Or the hospital that used the zombie blood. Humans are at the most creative when you put them in apocalyptic situations. 
And you know, what if we could all have our own Ekaiju? I'd want one. Don't tell me that you wouldn't want one. You mean, like a miniature Kaiju? That's what I had imagined, yeah, but I like the way you're thinking. Pekaitus that are the full size. Basically, we're suggesting that we keep a small little section of this huge planet permanently in the apocalypse. And the rest of us, and that's virtually everyone anyway, reap the benefits. Well, at least you're being honest about your evil. But of course, the central government authority contests your claim to England. They're just bureaucratic pencil pushers trying to drag down the enterprising underdog. The world's biggest company is the underdog. We have every legal right to consider England our property. And we will do with it as we see fit. Of course, this legal battle is taking place in what are effectively CGA courts. What would be the Wade Adler Company's response if you lose? We won't lose. Okay, but imagine that you do. There's no point imagining something as impossible as that. Right, but if somehow the CGA win? Are you suggesting the CGA would try and subvert the court? What? No, not at all. I just want to hear what the company will do should that happen. You have a notorious reputation for holding grudges. Well, we would use the ample resources at our disposal. Our vast, almost limitless resources to further contest the issue. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but do you mean war? Mm. Violence tends to be expensive, but we would consider some extrajudicial resolution. Wow, that sounded ominous. Is there any sort of compromise that the Weird Adler Company and the CGA could reach? Compromise is what weak people want. Okay, I think that's all we have time for. I can't bring myself to thank you for coming on the show, so I'll say it, it would have literally been impossible without you. You're welcome, Richard. See you soon. The knights led me outside, but instead of going back to Castlebridge's office, I was taken to an old prefabricated structure. A dozen knights were arrayed outside, and we went into the building, another four were there as well as Castlebridge. The knights looked uneasy and grumbled unhappily amongst themselves. Richard, so glad to see you again, said Castlebridge, still maintaining their friendly disposition. Oh dear, you've been shot, he said, pointing at the blood-stained and definitely ruined shirt. Marlowe, do something to help our guest. A knight turned round, clutching a shotgun tightly in his hands. He stared at Castlebridge for a second and then put the weapon down. Taking a large leather bag out from under the table, Marlowe began to see to my wound. Not too much we can do now, said Castlebridge, but we can patch you up and give you something for the pain. It would be awful if you were to die before the showdown. Marlowe went about his work in a sullen mood, banging items down on the table forcefully and completely ignoring me. It wasn't one of the knights that did that, was it? asked Castlebridge, and I assured him it was a case of friendly fire, and this seemed to please him. I now noticed was nursing a cup of tea. Marlow finished his work and picked up the shotgun again. I couldn't help it and asked Castlebridge what they were so unhappy about. Well, part of it is they've never been too happy when they need to assume this role. They don't like being the villains, he explained. 
They're very literal, you see. They don't really understand the complicated duality that exists between hero and villain. But usually, they don't suffer so many casualties, and I think that's what's really bothering them. I had to still try. Look, just let me go. We'll leave, and no one else has to die. You and your knights can keep doing whatever it is you do. Read books, work out plots, anything you want. Castlebridge took a sip of his tea and then answered. You think I'm doing this, Richard? I'm really not. This is the story. I don't intervene. I write it up. I occasionally give the knights some advice, but that's it. I gave up. There was no getting through to him. Castlebridge was clearly insane. He was as bad as any crazed cult member or religious fanatic in believing that he had no choice in any of this. He was completely in the hands of a higher power. So, is the plan still for me to die in all this? I asked Castlebridge. Well, you're still having a counter-narrative effect, he replied. And that can't be allowed. I bet even now you're thinking about how to tell this story in your podcast. Plus, losing a close friend is a good motivator for a protagonist. Tell me, are you and Sophia more than friends? That would really help the narrative. I shook my head and told him that we were just friends. Castlebridge went back to his typewriter, the keys seemingly making an incredibly loud sound in the otherwise silent building. Occasionally, Castlebridge asked me a question about correct spelling of someone's name or some other bit of information he needed for his writing. He was quick to point out, though, that while he was writing about real events, he still considered this fiction rather than facts, as he had taken great liberties with the truth to make a better story. There was a shout from outside, and the knight sprung into action. None of them left the building, but already themselves next to doors and windows. The shouting outside continued, and then there was gunfire. I couldn't help it, and stepped closer to the window, holding up my hands, showing that I only wanted to look. I could see Sophia advancing towards the building, automatic pistol in one hand, and sabre in the other. The knights were holding their ground, and Sophia just kept getting closer, and soon would be in range of them. I turned to Castlebridge. They won't shoot her, will they? She's your god or saviour or whatever. Castlebridge paused from writing. Oh, they'll fire. It only works if it's genuine. I turned back to the window. I was no gun expert, but reasoned surely she would be in range in seconds. Not all the knights had guns, but enough did. There was a single loud crack of gunfire, and the knight closest to Sophia crumbled to the floor, and she just kept walking forward. If you're going to watch, Richard, shouted Castlebridge from his typewriter, could you let me know what's going on? I reluctantly agreed and relayed events back to him. Someone, presumably Vasca, was acting as a sniper. As Sophia approached the building, I stepped back from the window, and a moment later, the door burst open. The knight closer to Sophia took several rounds from the pistol and collapsed. Sophia then sprayed the room with the remainder of the bullets, not managing to actually hit anyone. Three knights were left. One next to the window raised his pistol, but was brought down from a bullet that smashed through the window. Castlebridge was furiously typing and didn't notice the spray of blood that covered half of his desk. The remaining two knights both went for Sophia, and the three of them struggled, but eventually the two knights had her pinned down. My eyes fell on a pistol lying on the floor, and I picked it up when Castlebridge caught my arm. You know, if they kill her, he said, she's not the protagonist, and there'd be no reason to harm you. 
I pulled myself free and aimed the pistol as best I could, and in as authoritative a voice as I could manage, I yelled at them to stop. One of the knights looked up, seemingly dismissed me as a threat and went back to trying to kill Zofia, so I fired. I missed, but one of the knights gave up on Zofia and decided I needed to be dealt with. I fired again and missed. The knight grabbed the gun from my hand and punched me. I fell against Castlebridge's desk and the knight punched me again. He needs to die, right? The knight asked Castlebridge. Yes, of course, answered Castlebridge absentmindedly as he began moving papers away from my struggling body. The knight drew a knife, flipped it round in his hand and was about to bring it down when Castlebridge shot him. The knight staggered back and stood still for a moment before collapsing. Calmly, Castlebridge stood up and walked over to where Zofia and the last knight were still struggling. The knight choking the life out of her. Castlebridge pressed the gun against the back of the knight and fired. Zofia pushed the now dead knight off her and scrambled to her feet. Castlebridge returned to his desk, carefully set the pistol down and then returned to his typewriter. I rushed to Zofia to see if she was okay and after a few deep breaths she seemed alright. I walked back to Castlebridge, who was still typing, and as I reached his desk he stopped with a flourish and pulled the sheet of paper from the typewriter and placed it on the pile. He looked up and smiled at me. You shot those people. Y your people, I said. Castlebridge shrugged. They weren't my people, I told you. I wasn't in charge of them. I grabbed Castlebridge and pulled him out of the chair. You wanted to kill me. You tried to kill Vasca. You could have killed Zofia. What was it all for if you were just going to save us in the end? I realised it was a different kind of story, said Castlebridge. It was a love story. You two clearly love each other. She risked her life to try and save you. You tried to help her when that could have led to your death. Castlebridge picked up the pistol from the desk. You even used a gun to try and save her. He stopped speaking as the bullet hit him square in the chest. I looked back to see Vasco in the doorway, rifle in her hands. The three of us made our way back to the train. We were all injured, so made slow progress. It was an odd journey. Vasco had thought she was saving us from Castlebridge, but we told her instead that moments earlier he had saved us. As for me and Zofia, we were both still thinking about what he had said to us, that we loved each other. I rescued Castlebridge's manuscript from the university. I wanted to know about the other people who had come before us, the other protagonists he had let die. When we got back to the train, we once again had to go to the medical bay. When the bullet was removed, I learned that I had indeed been from Vasquez's weapon, meaning this was the second time she had shot me. Annoyingly, much like the first time, Vasquez saw no reason to apologise. I'll leave it there for this episode to give me some time to recover from my wound. At the End of Line was written and performed by Richard Oliver. Holly Ritchie is our producer. Find her on Twitter at AllRightBarBag. That's A-L-R-I-G-H-T-B-A-W-B-A-G-G. In this episode, Mason Veitch was played by Zane Sexton. Zane has appeared in numerous audio dramas and has his own, The Shadowy Slicker. For more information, look it up on Twitter at Shadowy Slicker. Our theme music is by Chip Michael. Find more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash Chip Michael. Chip is also part of the Tales of Sage and Savon podcast, which I highly recommend. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. 
follow the show on Twitter at PostAPodPodcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice and make urgent pleas for help should tweet us or send an email to at theendalinepodcast at gmail.com. For more information on the show, please go to our website at theendalinepodcast.squarespace.com. <laughs>